So tonight I'd like to talk about intimacy and freedom. And I'm going to begin actually by talking about renunciation and the the concept of renunciation is a central one in Buddhism and it often refers to the monastic form of one who renounces the world and takes up a life of simplicity and celibacy. But a deeper meaning of renunciation and I feel more relevant to our lives as lay people is that of renunciation as a letting go, not of worldly life, but of everything in our minds and our hearts which separates us from all the various parts of ourselves and which separates us from other people. In this meaning of renunciation, it's not the outer form which I'm referring to, but the inner experience. There's a story of a woman called Anandamaya Ma, who was a great Indian saint who lived in this century. And, is, and as is the case in India, um, when somebody is known to be a great saint, many worldly wealthy people will come by to see this person, to pay their respects, to gain some merit. So one day a group of very uh, powerful worldly wealthy people came to see Anandamaya Ma, and they greeted her and they said, we have come to see you because you are a great renunciate. At which point she burst out laughing and she laughed and laughed hysterically and they were all kind of shocked and she sort of threw herself on the ground and she was rolling around just laughing and laughing and laughing and they go, what, what's, what's with this woman? And finally she said, don't you see you are the great renunciates. You have given up the love of God, the knowledge of God, the service of God. You are the great renunciates. I salute you. And it is very much a kind of turning around of our priorities to be on a spiritual journey. An inner journey of letting go of all that keeps us separate, of everything which separates us from our true being. It is the plight of us as human beings to often feel quite separate and isolated. And in response to this feeling of isolation, we have invented many social forms to try to overcome or alleviate that often very painful sense of being separate and lonely and alone. And so we have, and every culture has, a whole variety of ways people try to get together with other like-minded people to feel less isolated, to feel less separate, to feel more a part of something. And so we have created all kinds of forms, everything from religions to cults to secret societies to intimate relationships to political parties to support groups we have become infinitely creative about how to get people together and we look to all of these forms to help us overcome our very real feelings of isolation and separation and perhaps at times they do help us to feel more connected but basically they cannot do the whole job by their very nature because 
the root cause of our basic sense of separation is in our own minds and hearts. Thomas Merton said, what can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all voyages of discovery, and without it, all the rest are useless. And it's very true that in the silence and in the aloneness of a meditation retreat, we often come directly up against the abyss, that which separates us from ourselves. What is this? What is it that separates us? The root cause is that of grasping, of holding on. Dujum Rinpoche wrote, your deadliest enemies, the ones who have kept you tied to samsara through countless lives from beginningless time up until the present, are the grasping and the grasped. This is what keeps our world spinning. And we can and do, and we see on a meditation retreat, we hold on to almost anything, even to that which we don't like. We hold on to holding on. Why is this? Why? Why do we hold on so tightly, so protectively? I think it's because we think our security lies in this holding on. Our survival lies in holding on. But actually, our holding on is what creates the illusion of security, as well as perpetuates the illusion of a continuous self. The very act of holding on is the abyss that separates us from our true being. So tonight I'd like to speak about four ways our holding on can commonly manifest. Of course, this holding on is infinitely creative. I'd like to speak only about four ways. This is not the whole story. So I'd like to begin with a story, which is a story of a king who was a very kindly old man who had been the king of his kingdom for many years. His reign had been a peaceful one. He was much beloved by his subjects. He was very kind, very generous, very compassionate. And he was getting older, and his wife had died, and his only son had been killed in war. So he had no heir. He had nobody to pass on his kingdom to. So being the kind of man he was, he decided to uh, interview prospective candidates. And he did this by sending out his messengers all through the kingdom and letting it be known that anyone could come and interview with him to be possibly the heir to his kingdom. And so the messengers went out and the people heard the news. And on the appointed day, there was a very long line outside the doors of the palace, waiting to be interviewed, to be the heir to the kingdom. And so they were brought into the palace, and the first thing they were given was uh, a treat. They were given to going into the bathhouse where they could 
take off their clothes and they could take a hot tub and perfume themselves and wash themselves with wonderful soaps and lotions and get massages and really just really, you know, clean themselves and feel really relaxed before they went to see the king. And after that, they were led into the wardrobe room and they were given a whole choice, an array of clothing that they could choose from before they went up to see the king. And they got very busy in the wardrobe room, trying on all kinds of outfits and ooing and eyeing and having a hard time deciding. And so some of them got a little greedy. Instead of just putting on one thing, they put on, you know, two. They put one, they put another over it and hope nobody would notice. And, and after they'd gotten all dolled up, then they went in to have a great feast. And this was a feast that included a great array of all kinds of foods, of hors d'oeuvres, of main courses, of desserts, and all kinds of beverages, and wines, and anything they wanted to drink. And so they're all having a fine time, just having a great time having all this delicious food. And then they had entertainment, and the day was going by. I mean, this was taking time. Meanwhile, the king is upstairs, and he's kind of waiting, you know, for the candidates to appear, and nobody's coming upstairs. And finally, late in the afternoon, he calls his minister, and he said, well, you know, I'm waiting. Where are they? Where are the, where are the candidates? And the minister says, well, sire, I hate to tell you this, but they've all gone home. They took the soap. They took the clothes. They took the food, they took just a lot of things, and they went home. I think they forgot what they were here for. <laughs> and in a way, this is the story of all of us, of all of us sort of grabbing what we can in the sensory world. All that we can, forgetting why we have come, thinking that we need a new car, more money, more clothes, more technology, more this, more that forgetting what we are here for, forgetting the greater opportunity which is available to claim our inheritance, to know who we truly are. Ramakrishna said, people weep rivers of tears because they don't have a child or they can't get money. But who sheds even one teardrop because he has not seen God? We can get lost in this world very easily, holding on to pleasures, distractions, which are momentary, and which very much perpetuate the illusion of a continuous self having something. So we hold on to this sensory world the second thing I'd like to speak about that is part of this abyss that separates us from ourselves, we hold on to grudges. We are unwilling at times to forgive. We hold on to resentment. And we can very much experience this on a meditation retreat when we are asked to practice forgiveness meditation. We're asked to practice loving kindness. And we sometimes experience this as a real wall inside, a very firm, no, I will not forgive. And what I would like to point out tonight is not so much that we should forgive or we're 
not doing the practice if we don't forgive, but just to observe what it does to us internally when we take that stance. When we don't forgive, we are actually clinging to the very thing which separates us from our own fulfillment. We are holding our own heart in bondage. When we don't forgive, we are bound to feel separate from others and from ourselves. The Dalai Lama is a great inspiration to me when I think about or reflect on forgiveness. I don't remember who told me the story. Um, Maybe it was Jack, I don't know if it was you or somebody else, but I heard a story that the Dalai Lama was giving some teachings in Dharamsala to a small group of Westerners. And in the middle of these teachings, a messenger came in with a, a letter for the Dalai Lama. And the messenger was quite stirred up and he handed this letter to the Dalai Lama and evidently it was quite important because they were interfering, you know, stopping the ceremony. So the Dalai Lama opened the letter and when he, he read it and then he just burst into tears. And you can imagine when the Dalai Lama burst into tears, it's like, whoa, God is crying or something. It was quite a moment in the room to see this man just break down and weep openly. And then he looked up and he said, I've just received news of these monks and these nuns who have been tortured and killed by the Chinese in Tibet. So he offered his prayers for them and then without missing a beat, he also said, and now we must also pray for the Chinese. We must also pray for the Chinese not forgetting in his own heart this important forgiveness, a constant process that we're all engaged in. Another example, which was very inspiring to me, was hearing Thich Nhat Hanh speak a few years ago when he was in Berkeley during the Iraqi war. He gave a talk one night addressing it primarily to people who were working for peace in the Middle East. And he was asking people to go further in their peacemaking. He said, you know, it's not enough just to go out in the streets and protest and write letters to our senators and so forth. It's not enough. You must go one step further in your peacemaking. He said, your peacemaking will not be complete At that time, uh, George Bush was president. He said, your peacemaking will not be complete until you are able to write a love letter to George Bush. Well, you can imagine, it was like, a love letter to George Bush? Wow. Can we imagine that? Can we open to that possibility, to be that open-hearted, to be that compassionate, to be that forgiving? And this also brings to my mind how often on retreat we are so very hard on ourselves. All our places of shame and judgment come up. And it really does seem at times like the person that we most need to write a love letter to is ourselves. 
to all that is in us that we most fear and despise and loathe. Could we do this? Actually, this is a practice in Burma. They sometimes give the instruction when somebody's having difficulty, say, with loving-kindness practice, to go and reflect on your good qualities. We all have them. But when our mind is so full of judgment, it is hard to make a connection with them. So the challenge is partly to write a love letter to ourselves, to remember our good qualities, our good actions. We all have them. So renunciation and forgiveness are constant companions with us on this spiritual journey. Renouncing all that separates us and keeps us unable to be present with an open heart. Forgiving all that we don't like or are offended by. Understanding the wisdom of staying connected with the heart. The poet Rumi said, Out beyond ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. Will you meet me there? In a way, it's our own heart which is asking this question of us as we sit. Can we let go of all of our ideas about right and wrong, about our limited beliefs, our judgments, our opinions, our stories, our agendas, our self-images? Can we let go of all of that and meet ourselves as if for the first time? This is the possibility which meditation offers us, meeting ourselves in a place with no history, no rules, no right, no wrong, no shoulds, no hopes, no fear, no plans for future gain. It's a place of aloneness. No friends or loved ones come with us on this journey and also of deep connection and intimacy with the vastness of our being and thus with all of life. In this meeting, we see life as it is, a constant fleeting process of change, the ever-changing fluid dance of body and mind. There is a hermit saint in Rishikesh in India who is very loved and very well known. Many people come to visit him and what his practice is every day he walks from his hut a short distance to a waterfall and he stands all day by the waterfall. That is his practice. And at the end of the day he bows to the waterfall and he says, well done. Well done. (laughs) The secret of meditation is in this. Can we, at the end of sitting or at the end of a day on retreat, can we bow to the waterfall of our mind's outpouring, all the thoughts and feelings? Imagine all the thoughts and feelings that have poured through you today. Could you bow to them and say, well done, well done. Can we bow to our body, which sustains us in this life? It's always taking care of us. 
It also has aches and pains. Could we at the end of our day bow to our body and say, well done, well done. Now, I don't mean to imply that as the saint is standing by the waterfall that he doesn't have a few thoughts or that he doesn't, his body doesn't give him some problem sometime or he doesn't feel a little bit of desire or greed or aversion or whatever. We don't know what he experiences as he stands there, but we do know that whatever he experiences, his relationship to it is one of open acceptance and appreciation. Can we bring that to our meditation? Another way in which our grasping and holding on manifest constantly, constantly in our experience is in what the third Zen patriarch calls the burdensome practice of judging. We all know this one all too well. The mind which is constantly judging, condemning, comparing, evaluating, liking this, disliking that, having an opinion always about whatever's going on. And we judge ourselves usually quite unmercifully. And we judge others often quite harshly. And on a meditation retreat, it's really quite a, a teaching, actually, to see how we judge people, because really we have often very little information about other people. But that doesn't stop, it to stop us, does it? In fact, it almost seems like the less information we have about somebody, the more free we are to judge them. So what does all this judging produce? What does it produce in our minds and bodies? Does it produce happiness, peace, joy, contentment, calm, stillness, tranquility? Has anybody discovered that? I don't think so. What does judging produce? What have you noticed? What does it do to you? Anyone? Makes you brittle. Makes you brittle? Yeah. What else? Reinforces the eye. Separation. Separation. What else? All of these things, agitation, uneasiness, insecurity, fear, all get awakened when we judge. We need to improve ourselves. We know this one. Now, the problem with judging is that we often believe our judgments are the truth. You've noticed this probably, too. Oh, this one is the truth. How often do we take something up that this is the true me or this is the true other person? And even we can see that even positive judgment produces a kind of anxiety and a kind of separation from others. You know, well, I did that really well. I'm must be advancing on this path, you know, and I guess I'm getting a little ahead of the crowd here or something. <laughs> or, you know, she's so wonderful. She's really the best at what she does, you know. These kinds of judgments invite comparison, invite a certain level of envy and competition. And in doing, in holding on to them, we forget our commonality, 
We forget that we are all equal. Even thinking we know someone really well is a kind of subtle holding on, a a very, very subtle form of judgment which creates separation. I have a friend, a woman I know already many years. One day she's mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone, I know you. People jump around. They're like a ball, rubbery. They bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in. Make a little hole. It goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This, likewise, you could do concerning yourself. All this I didn't read in any book. It is my own invention. We judge others, we judge ourselves. So I'd like to look at this a bit. How we like some parts of ourselves and we dislike others. And it seems like we all want to be the hero or the heroine, the one who is loved and admired and successful, courageous, joyful, wise, compassionate, smart, forgiving, the bodhisattva, the arhat, the Buddha, the saint, the perfect yogi. But what about the part of ourselves that is the tyrant, the insensitive slob, the wicked witch, the bitch, the bastard, the needy child, the asshole, the orphan, the bag lady, the derelict, the victim, the failure. Do you think they're not here with us? You think we check them at the door just because this is a meditation retreat? I don't think so. Can we open to all the parts of ourselves which are most most despised, most feared, which we are most ashamed of? Or are they to sort of float around forever banished and rejected? Actually, sometimes it's true that we own only the bad parts and we disown the positive parts. We probably all do some combination of this. But whatever we don't own in ourselves, whether it be positive or negative, chances are if we don't own it, it will get projected out onto someone else. What we have not accepted in ourselves often gets projected onto others. He is really, really angry. I never get angry. He's the one who's always angry, or he's so arrogant. Or she is so courageous, so strong. I could never be like that. We do this all the time. Any way in which we become identified with one part of ourselves and reject another creates inner separation. 
it also creates separation from others. Meditation asks very unconditionally that we heal this separation, that we own all the parts of ourselves, that we invite them all to be present. To be healed in this way is to be whole, is to be complete, is to be a human being. Meditation is the living laboratory of our healing. As we open to all that arises in our mind and body, know know it in its actuality as fleeting thoughts and emotions, even when they are despised, fearful, or ugly. Can we let them arise? Can we let them show themselves? Can we let them be? Can we meet whatever arises, not with judgment or denial, but with an open heart and with clear seeing? Can we see all that arises that is difficult, not as proof of failure, which we sometimes do, but of a teaching? It's a teaching of what it means to be a human being, actually and therefore subject to the full range of pleasure and pain, of light and dark, of sweet and sour, of difficult and easy. We all have this. Can we open to it? When we reconnect with all the parts of ourselves from which we have separated, we are helping to heal the world, actually. For the degree to which we accept the totality of our mind stream, will we also be able to accept the totality of another's? So that when your child is cranky or your boss is impatient or your partner is down in the dumps, you won't be reacting with aversion. You won't be rejecting, judging, or being critical, creating more separation, actually, but rather you will be finding a way to to heal by staying open and connected. Our capacity for compassion gets developed as we sit here when we can open to our own pain. Judgment creates separation. Compassion creates connection. So, briefly to review, this abyss that separates us from ourselves contains holding on to grudges and resentments, holding on to judgment, and all the disowned parts of ourselves, who we think we are not, who we hope we are not. And finally, and fourthly, and finally, it contains the pervasive sense of a solid and continuous self, an I having something, doing something, or becoming something. The sense of self, this me, is the object which the mind and body subscribe to most firmly. Where there's a me, there's a not me, an other. Where there is an other, there is fear. Where there is fear, there is separation. I have a friend who, several years ago, was riding his bicycle in San Francisco, and he was hit by a car and knocked unconscious. When he woke up in the hospital, 
He had no idea who he was. He had no idea who he was. He also said that he was totally peaceful. Isn't that curious? Now, you might think if you woke up in the hospital and you'd forgotten who you are, you might feel a little anxious, like, or fearful or something. He was totally peaceful. This is a teaching. <laughs> Maybe we won't believe it until it happens to us. Meditation is a wonderful opportunity to see directly how the idea of self appears and then becomes solidified around our experience. Now, Carol spoke quite a bit about this last night, and I don't, I'm a little hesitant to do this, but I, this, this um, whole topic of, of self, no self, is, is so rich and dense and at times confusing, but it's like, to me, it's like looking at a many faceted jewels. So tonight I'm just going to, whatever I'm going to say, I hope it doesn't add to any confusion, but hopefully it's just another way. It's another view. It's not the true, it's not the absolute view. It's not the last word. It's just another view of this whole subject. And I really enjoyed the way Carol talked about the story of I. You know, this story of I is the story. It's the story that we are constantly preoccupied with and most hypnotized by, actually. Our story, other stories. So many variations, all starring, guess who? Basically, at heart, the story of I is the story of separation and longing. Inevitably, that is the basic theme of the separate self. But we each have our own variations on that theme. The separate self is endlessly creative. So how are we writing our I story? How are we creating it? What is our I story? What is the theme of our I story? Our I story may be primarily the story of rebellion, or it may be primarily the story of service, or it may be primarily the story of fear, or it may be primarily the story of victimization, or it may be primarily the story of overcoming great odds. We all have our story and endless variations on certain themes in our lives. How do these stories actually get created? How is it that we believe in them? Well, I'd like to look a little more closely with you at how the story gets created. This I story is made up of experiences. We all go through life having many, many different kinds of experiences. And of these experiences, we grasp onto some experiences and we resist others. And out of that, identification with experience as me gets solidified. What does it mean to be identified with an experience? I want to look at this a little closely. To be identified with an experience means either grasping onto an experience and claiming it as, yes, that's me, that's mine, 
or paradoxically resisting an experience and claiming it as not me. Oh no, that's not me, that's not mine, and trying to get rid of it. In other words, we know we are identified with an experience when we notice we're trying to protect or maintain something, or when we notice we're trying to get rid of something. That's a sure sign that there's some identification at work. It seems paradoxical that both grasping and resisting are both forms of identification. How can this be? Basically, they're both places of holding. In both cases, what solidifies and maintains this identification with is the thinking about and dwelling upon an experience. For example, we're sitting and anger arises. And usually with anger there's a story and we immediately associate with the story, maybe a past event. And we recall the event in vivid detail and we relive it over and over again. And we feel the anger increasing as we dwell on what has occurred. And out of this we begin to feel Well, I'm right to be angry. Anybody would be angry in this situation. Of course I'm angry. It's justified. My anger is totally justified. I am angry. So this is one kind of identification with with an experience, with anger. Another kind of identification. Again, say, anger arises. We recall a past event in the same way, we relive it over and over. But then suddenly remorse sets in, all this feeling of shame and guilt, like I should not have been angry, I really blew it, I'm really a terrible person for being angry, I wish I could get over my anger, I'm just horrible for being angry, I just will never get angry again. Again, we are caught, again, we are identified This is another kind of identification with the same experience. One is a position of acceptance and justification. The other is a position of shame and rejection. Both involve being identified with. Both involve much thinking about and dwelling upon the experience. This is what gives a sense of continuous self thinking about it, dwelling upon it, brooding about it, drawing conclusions based on our experience about who I am. I am right to be so angry. I'm an angry person and I'm, I, that's who I am. Or I'm terrible to be so angry. This sense of self is created over and over in the way that we dwell on the story and perpetuate the story. When we dwell on something, keep thinking about it, replaying it, it stays around. It begins to loom very large in our awareness. It doesn't seem like there's any space for anything else in the whole world. It comes to seem very solid and very immovable, very real, it feels real. Its impermanence seems very questionable. It will never go away. I will always be an angry person. I'm angry now. But the truth is, and we can see this when we're sitting, the truth is there are many moments when we are not angry. 
And one way to begin to loosen up these conclusions that we draw about ourselves is to begin to notice more actively when, when those, what we believe about ourselves is not present, when we're not angry, when we're not the person that we thought we were. Another part of the truth is that we don't like to see our part in keeping this story around by obsessing about it, by replaying it or rehearsing it, and by the way we use it to reach conclusions about ourselves over and over and over again. Let me give another example. It's a similar teaching on this, this question of identity. Many years ago, I, when I was sitting at Barry, there was a teacher there by the name of Munindraji, who one night in a Dharma talk said something which I have never forgotten. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. He didn't say, well, some thoughts of your mother are your mother. They're the real mother, and then other thoughts are not your mother. He said, no thought you could possibly ever have about your mother is your mother, because who your mother is in her suchness, in her total beingness, is not, you cannot capture that in words. Any description is fragmented and partial. And then he proceeded to challenge us, and I will proceed to challenge you. In the same way, can you say to yourself, the thought of myself is not myself? All your favorite thoughts about yourself, all your most least favorite thoughts of yourself, none of these are who you are. The thought of myself is not myself. What if you went through one day or one hour or even 10 minutes of not believing any of the thoughts that you have about who you are, who you think you are? What comes up for you when I say that? What do you feel? Anyone? Joy. Joy. <laughs> Do it. It's yours. You can practice this. Why not? If it brings joy, if it brings relief, ah, what a burden I'm putting down. I don't have to believe all this about myself. The truth is your essential beingness, your essential wholeness can never be captured by thought. Isn't that liberating? One of the highest teachings in this practice, in the Avatamsaka Sutra, it says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. This kind of reminds me of my friend who was knocked unconscious. He lost all views of his self. He found peace. Really, the heart of spiritual practice and understanding is moving from identification with all of these views of self to having no view of self. 
And this may sound like a nice esoteric idea, but what the practice offers us is the opportunity to see very directly on the spot in our experience how we construct our belief in self through grasping on, how we maintain it through dwelling, and in the seeing of that process, moment to moment, comes the freedom from it. In the very seeing, we are letting go of our belief in this limited, partial, fragmented ideas about who we think we are. In moments of just bare attention, of just seeing, just feeling, just hearing, just noticing thoughts of I, is there a thought of I? Is it necessary? (coughs) Is it necessary? Can we just be that simple? In that moment of bare attention, there's just complete acceptance of things as they are. There's no view of self to protect or maintain. Such moments are actually a glimpse of what is true, that our happiness is not dependent on having any particular self-image. Nothing to protect, nothing to maintain. It's really very liberating, this understanding. Seeing clearly the way in which this identification of experience with me, with mine, occurs, keeps the spiritual quest from being about becoming someone special, becoming a good meditator, a good person, a good yogi, a bodhisattva. These images, while they may awaken aspiration or interest, can too easily solidify the notion that there is someone special to become. But the Buddha himself did not become anyone special, at least not in his own eyes. On the contrary, after his awakening, when asked, people saw him, they were struck by his radiance, and they said, who are you? He didn't say, I'm a great awakened hoo-ha, I'm the Buddha, I'm a great yogi, or anything. He said, no, he didn't say any of those things. He just said, I'm awake. I'm awake. That's all. He had let go of all identification with self. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Nothing to protect, nothing to maintain, nothing to reject. Do you see that? Can you open to that? That's a very real possibility for us right now, right here. Don't wait. The ultimate goal of this practice cannot be objectified. It is not a state. It's not an experience. It's not about becoming someone special. It's not about having special experiences. It's not about getting rid of anything. It's not an it. It's about the complete relaxation and letting go of our deepest tendencies of mind and body to hold on. And this is what the practice can help us to do, to surrender those tendencies which keep us seeking for and grasping at objects. I'd like to 
well, almost close. I'm almost through. This is a little long, I know. Whew. I'd like to uh, quote Jean Klein. <laughs> have to admit, I didn't really feel like doing this talk tonight. I was kind of into the desert and walking around out there. But anyway, um, here we are. I'd like to finish with Jean Klein. That's what you have to do when you're a teacher, show up. <laughs> you can never obtain what you are. It is always present. Any movement to attain it is thus a going away, because when you want something, you suppose you lack it. When you want something, you suppose you lack it. Who you are reveals itself by itself. There's a saying that enlightenment is an accident and that meditation practice makes us more accident prone. <laughs> it loosens us wherever we are holding. And tonight we've explored some of the holding patterns that keep us separate from ourselves and others, <laughs> holding on to grudges and resentments, holding on to judgments and opinions, holding on to self-images. The Diamond Sutra says, cling to nothing. To be free is possible in any moment when we are free of clinging, free of resisting. To be free of clinging is to be completely intimate with all that arises in our mind and body. No resistance, no getting lost, no spacing out, just being present, just breathing, just hearing, just sensing, just noticing eyes, thoughts arise and pass away. In the Zen tradition, a person's enlightenment is sometimes described as, suddenly she was intimate. I really like that. Suddenly she was intimate. To awaken means to be intimate with all things. No more separation. This is freedom. So now we have a treat. You thought this evening was over. Well, it's not. It's my great um, delight to introduce to you someone who's going to sing us a beautiful song of Kabir. So maybe if you'd like to stand up and stretch a minute, I'd like to introduce Sita, and while we're getting set up, you can just take a stretch. But please don't leave the room. Sita. She doesn't know if she's going to need the mic or not. What do you think? So as Anna said, the words to this song were written by a poet called Kabir. Um, he was an ecstatic poet who lived about the same time as Rumi in the 14th century in India. And for me, I have not found anything that describes better, more skillfully, the quality of unconditional love. So I'd really like to share this with you tonight, and I thank Anna for asking me to sing this. And I ask one thing of you, that when you hear this, 
use your whole body as your ears. Just imagine that your body is your ear.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on April 19, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.